Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listeners in, welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to go over our usual shout out to all of our listeners. It is because of you that we are one of the biggest podcasts in Ohio. You have made us number two on Evergreen Network as well as number two on KillerPodcasts.com. With your help, I know we can get the number one. All you have to do is just keep doing what you're already doing. Keep sharing our podcasts with friends and family, and keep supporting us on patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ohiomysteries. Please also leave us feedback on our episodes. If you have any take on any episode, email us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. And who knows, you might hear your feedback on an upcoming podcast. So, Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. He was handsome and charismatic the kind of man whose friendly smile quickly put strangers at ease. But his appearance and charm obscured his true nature. He was, indeed, a cold-blooded serial killer. And after he was finally caught and made to atone for the trail of death in his wake, he showed no remorse. He was completely indifferent, not only to the lives he'd taken, but even his own life, as he calmly kept his date with an executioner. Now, if you didn't already know the title of this episode, you'd probably think I was describing Ted Bundy, who has been famously studied by psychologists after his 1970s reign of terror. But had psychology been a profession in the 1800s, they no doubt would have turned their attention to Stephen D. Richards, another serial killer whom modern head shrinkers have come to call Ted Bundy of the Old West. Tonight, we share the story of Richards, who confessed to nine murders in Nebraska and Iowa between 1876 and 1878, after finally being captured by folks in his hometown of Mount Pleasant, Ohio.
Richards was actually born in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1856 into a large family. He had five sisters and a brother. But his family soon moved to Ohio, first Monroe County, then Noble County, then finally putting down roots in Mount Pleasant, a village in Jefferson County along the state's eastern border. That's where he spent his formative years. His mom was a devout Methodist, not particularly strict, but influential enough that young Stephen attended Sunday school and church regularly. She died when Stephen was 15 years old. His father was a farmer, and Stephen kept himself busy with assorted jobs at area farms. He also attended the local Oak Grove School, where he was sure his teachers considered him well-behaved. He said he never did anything bad while living in Mount Pleasant, that he was well-raised, stood in good society, and traveled in good company. He also grew into a looker by contemporary accounts. Six foot two inches tall, strongly built, dark hair and blue eyes, and a smile that revealed perfectly straight white teeth. Mount Pleasant was founded as a Quaker community, home to active abolitionists and the country's very first anti-slavery newspaper. Even after the Civil War in the 1870s, it was, as Richards described it, a very orderly town. In other words, not exactly the kind of environment one would expect to rear a psychopath. Maybe Richards didn't think so either, because in February of 1876, he left. He was 20 years old when he headed westward, as many ambitious young people did in those days. He left behind a fiancé, Anna Milhorn, but he continued to correspond with her as if he just needed to finish sowing his oats first. Richards later said if he hadn't been arrested, he would have returned to marry her. Out on his own, Richards quickly made some questionable acquaintances. He met a man from New York and had acquired some counterfeit bills, which Richards began to pass. And he made pals with a gang that robbed trains for a living. He also tried his hand at legitimate work. In Iowa, he became a farmhand for a bit before landing a job as an attendant at the Iowa Lunatic Asylum. One of his responsibilities was to bury the dead. Richards blamed that experience for twisting his mind. He told a reporter, That took away to some extent my feeling and sympathy for mankind. I could stand by a man and see him die with no more feeling than I would have for a hog. When I left there, I didn't care for anything and had no respect for human nature. Richards left the asylum after a few months and became a drifter, floating through Kansas City and then on to Nebraska. It was on his way to Kearney, Nebraska, when Richards took his first life. He was on horseback, traveling the Nebraska countryside, when he met another man on horseback. They shared the road for a time and hit it off, so when dark came, they decided to camp together. 
They whiled away the evening in front of the fire, playing poker, and Richards won most of the stranger's money. The next morning, as they planned to set off for Kearney, the stranger asked for his money back. Richards said no. When the stranger became belligerent, Richards quickly ended the argument by shooting him above the left eye. He threw the body in the Platte River. A couple of days later, still on his way to Kearney, he came across another man on foot. Turns out this traveler had seen Richards with the other man together and asked where the other guy was. The two men were friends. Richards tried denying any knowledge of the dead man, but when the stranger didn't give up, Richards figured he'd better kill him too. He waited for the stranger to turn, shot him in the back of the head, and disposed of the body. There was more bloodshed in Kearney, but Richards lost count. He got into several gunfights, he said, and walked away with men on the ground, but said he never bothered to follow up to see if any had survived. Then he moved on to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There, he used some of his counterfeit money to buy a horse and buggy. But when the seller later realized the bills were fake, he tracked Richards down outside of town and confronted him, threatening to have him arrested. Richards shot him and buried his body. By now, killing was coming so easy to Richards. It didn't take much for him to find an annoyance worthy of murder. In March of 1877, he met a young man on his way out of Grand Island, Nebraska, and they camped together along the Platte River. That night, they started a fire, ate dinner, and laid out their blankets when Richard said he made some careless remark about a trifling matter. To whatever the remark was, the guy said, you're a liar. Well, those were fighting words. It's a good thing you don't mean all you say, Richard said to the other guy. And he said, but I do mean it. Richard said, you don't want to mean it. That's when the other guy laid his hand on his pistol and said, Here is something that backs up all I say. Richards didn't hesitate. He pulled out his thirty-two caliber revolver and plugged the guy in the head. Richards returned to Kearney, Nebraska, and for a moment, it looked as if maybe the law had caught up with him. Richards was arrested for murder, but not for any murder he had committed. He and another man named Burns were accused of killing a man named Getway. Richards insisted he'd never heard of the guy. And since there was no evidence to connect him to the crime, police had to let him go. Richards was back out on the street. Up until now, Richards' list of victims were random men he'd met on the road. But he was about to broaden his resume in a most gruesome fashion. For a second time, Kearney authorities arrested Richards, this time for larceny. When he was taken into custody, another jail cell was occupied by Mary Harlson, 
Richard's new Mary and her husband, Jasper. Mary's husband was a horse thief, and she had helped her husband and his partner escape the jail. They went on the run. Mary was caught. While Richards and Mary shared their incarceration time together, Mary agreed she would sell Richards part of her property in six months' time for $600. Eventually, Richards was released from jail, and he traveled about Nebraska killing time, if not men, until he had enough money and it was time to take possession of the Harlson property. On October the 18th, 1878, he went to the Harlson homestead, and Mary transferred the property without question. With Mary's husband, Jasper, away, she and Richards hooked up. They spent the next three weeks like a family. Richards played with her 10-year-old daughter, Daisy, sang songs with four-year-old Mabel, and laughed as two-year-old Jasper repeatedly clung to his pant leg. But during this time, Richards had talked too much. Late-night conversations that hinted at a history of bad deeds. This was problematic, because Richards thought Mary was the talkative kind, and he became fearful that eventually she would use the knowledge against him. The only way to get that monkey off his back, he decided, was to kill Mary and the kids. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. By Richard's own confession, it happened Sunday morning, November the 3rd, 1878. There was another man staying at the house that night, a Mr. Brown. Richard's woke up early and nudged Brown awake. It was still dark out as he instructed Brown to go feed the horses and do some other chores around the farm. When Brown went to the barn, Richard's got a shovel and went out the back of the house where he dug a large hole. Then he went back inside, where Mary and her children were still asleep. Richard said he reached for an axe he had positioned near the door. He killed Mary with a blow from the flat side of the axe. Her two daughters, who were in bed with her, didn't even move. He turned to them next, hitting each in turn, before going to little Jasper in his crib at the end of the bed, and killing him with a blow. Richard said he heard moaning and turned to see Daisy was still alive, writhing in pain. He struck her a couple more times. 
Richards then carried the bodies to the grave he'd dug and buried them. They were all small and easily fit inside the hole, and he guessed the entire incident, from digging the grave to covering it up, lasted less than an hour. Then Richard said he went inside, scrubbed up a little blood that was left behind, and sat down to breakfast. Later, when Brown was done with his chores, he left the house. And when people later asked Richards where Mary and the kids were, he told them the family left with Brown, and he wasn't sure they were coming back. A month later, on December the 8th, Richards, now he's still just 22 years old at this time, agreed to help his neighbor, a 26-year-old Swedish immigrant named Peter Anderson, who was a bachelor and financially well-off. After some chores at Anderson's house, the two men sat down to eat, and Anderson became sick. Richards had prepared the meal. The next day, Anderson mentioned to neighbors that he thought Richards might have tried to poison him. Those same neighbors went to Anderson's house later that day to check on him and found Richards outside hitching up Anderson's horses. They hurried inside looking for Anderson and found his body in the basement buried beneath a pile of coal. His head had been caved in with a hammer. Richards later called it self-defense. He said he went to ask Anderson why he was telling people he poisoned him, and the two men fought. Anderson produced a knife, so Richards said he reached for a hammer on a nearby windowsill and killed him with it. Whatever the case, when the neighbors went into the house to look for Anderson, Richards hopped on a horse and fled. He returned home briefly to collect a few things, then left the state. Those who pursued him to his home were the ones who found the fresh grave of Mary and her children. Richards was eastbound, headed for home. But behind him, word was traveling. He was a wanted man. The state of Nebraska was offering a $200 reward for his capture. Wanted posters were sent to law enforcement all over the Midwest. Some of those posters even made it to Mount Pleasant, Ohio. On December the 20th, 11 days after Anderson's murder, Richards was back in his hometown. He attended a ballroom dance that night, accompanied by two women. It was there that a constable named McGrew recognized him. Constable McGrew enlisted the help of a penitentiary guard he knew named Folge, and the two men quietly collected some shotguns and followed Richards as he left the ballroom and set out across a field in the company of those two women. Richards saw them coming. He told his female companions to head back to town without him, but they refused to leave him, so he surrendered peacefully. Later, he said, If I hadn't the two girls with me, I guess the constable McGrew who arrested me 
would have been a dead man. Richards was put up in the Steubenville jail, and while there, he spent his time writing two articles that ran in local newspapers, confessing to crimes over a three-year period. He wrote, I have killed nine persons, and I can't say I feel any worse for it. That count later fluctuated. Reporters believed Richards had actually named 12 different people who had died by his hand. A person who later wrote a biography of Richards said he asked him if he at least felt a pang of regret for killing the three Harlson children. Richards reportedly responded, Not one damn bit. Just as soon would have slaughtered so many pigs. Deputies from Nebraska traveled to Steubenville to pick up Richards. By then, the man some were calling the Ohio Monster was making headlines, and he garnered much attention at every stop on the return trip west. On December the 28th, he arrived in Kearney by train. As expected, a large crowd of enraged residents gathered outside the jail, demanding his head. But eventually they dispersed, and there were no further incidents. Richards exchanged some correspondence with his sisters back home, but he never spoke again with his horrified and embarrassed father. At his request, none of his family attended his trial, which began the very next month in Minden, Nebraska. A jury took two hours to deliberate before finding Richards guilty of first-degree murder for Anderson and the Harlson family. He was sentenced to be hung April the 26th, 1879. Reporters who met with the man had trouble seeing the killer inside. One man who visited him at the penitentiary came away saying, he does not look like a murderer. He has a pleasant face. His voice is like a woman's. His eyes are not at all savage. On the contrary, they are mild and expressive of confidence. Can a man with such eyes be a murderer? Richards also didn't display a lot of the vices that one expected of a miscreant. He wasn't a heavy drinker, didn't cuss a lot, only gambled a little. He didn't even smoke much. Authorities decided to make a public spectacle of the hanging. It was to be the first execution in Nebraska since it became a state in 1867. By some estimates, the crowd that came to watch approached 25,000 people. Authorities had an enclosure built around the gallows, hoping to keep folks at a distance. But the crowd wasn't putting up with that they destroyed the makeshift barrier. Richards didn't want a last meal, 
but reports said a physician prescribed him three tablespoons of brandy every two hours to make sure he stayed calm. As the hour approached, a carriage arrived for him. He stepped out of his cell into a beautiful spring day with budding trees and a green meadow before him. Richards remarked on the scenery and said it would probably have been better if he'd become a gardener. Then the carriage took him to town where the gallows had been built. It paused once when Richards asked if they could stop at the post office to see if any letters were waiting for him, but there were none. At 1 p.m., he walked up to the scaffold, and the agitated crowd quieted for the show. The sheriff had purchased a 20-foot-long rope for the occasion, and using Richard's weight, decided it needed a drop of four feet to break his neck. Richard's asked to speak to the crowd briefly, saying something about making his peace with God and asking the crowd to join him in singing the hymn, Come thou font of every blessing. Witnesses said his final words were, Jesus be with me now. And at 1.17 p.m., the trapdoor was opened and Richards fell through to his death. His body was then displayed in its coffin. A photographer snapped a shot of his corpse. You can find it on the internet. Before his death, Local doctors pleaded with Richards to donate his body so they could study him. They hoped to find some kind of abnormality in his brain that could explain the mystery of how this intelligent, articulate, charismatic man could harbor such a dark, secret nature. But he refused. Still, he was not going to have a restful afterlife. Despite his gravesite being guarded, his remains were stolen, then returned, then much later dug up a second time when his bones were scattered on the streets of Kearney. On November the 1st, 1882, that was three years after his execution, the Kearney County Gazette obtained his skull and put it on display in the newspaper office's window. You know, it's easy to forget that there were serial killers that far back. I think we probably tend to think of them beginning with Jack the Ripper and being more modern day trend. True. Although, are you by definition a serial killer if you're just a gunslinger killing guys who annoy you? And when I think of a serial killer, I kind of think of someone who's stalking victims. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good point. Maybe there's another term like... For a repeat killer, maybe multiple murderer. <laughs> Say that three times fast. I don't think I said it right the first time. I'm not <laughs> going to try it at all. <laughs> That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well.
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.